Today, my guest is Professor Thomas Halt. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Thomas as a person, Professor Halt as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll keep my introduction short. Thomas Salt is an AIB fellow and a thought leader in international marketing, marketing strategy, supply chain management, and IB. He regularly speaks at high profile events such as the United Nations World Investment Forum, European Commission, and publishes influential opinion pieces in The Hill, Time, Fortune, World Economic Forum. Dr. Halt is a member of the expert network of the uh, World Economic Forum and United Nations UNCTAD's World Investment Forum, and is also a part of the expert team at the American Customer Satisfaction Index. He received the John Dunning AIB Service Award as the longest serving executive director in AIB's history from 2004 to 2019. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. You're doing a fantastic job with all these interviews, and I'm, I'm really privileged and glad to be part of them. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, Thomas, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, early on, we all have dreams about different things. And I played a lot of tennis and football or soccer, as we may call it, uh, where I live now in the United States. Uh, being from Sweden, tennis was a big thing when I grew up, uh, in the, especially in the 1980s and 1990s when I was playing most of my tennis. So probably uh, trying to be a professional tennis player uh, would be one of them. Uh, I came pretty far in tennis. Uh, once I played for Sweden uh, against the French juniors. So... It was still juniors, but I participated in a number of different tournaments around the, a variety of different countries. So perhaps those were the dreams back then. But frankly, since this is kind of an academic interview and, and so forth as well, uh, I have a really, I had a really strong interest in education and teaching from early on. My mom is a teacher, was a teacher, I should say. And even when I was in high school, she sort of uh, added me to the substitute, substitute teaching team at our school, at our elementary school. So I was uh, teaching elementary school extra a little bit when I was going to high school even. And then from then on, got, you know, ultimately a PhD out of all of that. Well, that's interesting. So uh, how old were you when you were teaching elementary school? Uh, from uh, 15... 1516 to 1920 in that range. So really early for teaching, you know, teaching first, second, third grade, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth at times. When I started university level and when I started my bachelor's in the United States, I came back, uh, you know, early since school's out in April or early May and was able to teach a little bit, uh, maybe uh, seven, eight, ninth grade as well. So really early on, frankly. Wow. So what made you decide to stay in academia? Well, it, it built on that. I, I didn't think about research and the scholarship of academia at that time, or even when I applied for a PhD program, frankly. So I got a bachelor's and master's in the United States. And then even after I got two degrees, I sort of applied to PhD program uh, with the mindset of teaching being the aspect that I wanted to engage in the most uh, from my background. I just wanted to elevate the level or perhaps uh, the type of people I would teach uh, at a college level versus elementary school. So early on that permeated my brain cells and then teaching became the avenue that ultimately made me incredibly interested in research and then frankly helping companies as well with the research that I'm doing. 
Yeah, how do you choose international marketing or uh, IB uh, to, to focus on your on your research? Well, being from Sweden, so I mean, there are a lot of foreigners in, in the United States going to school at various levels, but. Uh, being a foreigner, being from Sweden, uh, going to school in the United States, uh, it was almost an automatic that at least my professors thought that uh, given that background, I should know something about international, whether that's right or wrong, we can debate, but it became one of those things that uh, you're from a different country than you're going to school in. Uh, let's ensure that you are interested in the international aspects of who you are and other things around you. It was very practical. I mean, it was kind of like yeah, being in undergraduate classes. Uh, there were very few Swedish people. So I was always asked about the Swedish view of XYZ topic that may be covered in class. And, and that elevated to the MBA program and, and to some degree, frankly, the PhD program. All, obviously, in the PhD program, there are far more foreigners in US schools than perhaps smaller schools that I went to for my undergraduate and, and master's degree. Interesting. Who was your advisor in the PhD program? In the PhD program, uh, my advisor was O.C. Farrell. Uh, at the time, he was dean of the University of Memphis, where I went to school, and he was also president of the American Marketing Association. So I, mm -hmm. I got a fantastic background there. He's a superbly well-thought-of scholar in marketing or business ethics in particular, but also a little bit international, but the ethical aspect of uh, the background. Uh, Although that was not something I did in my dissertation, as we probably get into a little bit later, I did mostly global supply chain management, a little bit international marketing, of course. Mm. But the ethical aspect that stuck with me and the way I kind of morphed that into my liking or thinking was to focus on sustainability later in life. So whether it's uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or the previous ones that came up before that, the millennium ones and or other things, I, I sort of took his background and uh, what he instilled in me in terms of interest on ethics and expanded into some sustainability thoughts in my particular case. Perfect. Uh, something that you wouldn't put on your CV that people might find interesting other than tennis. Well, I'm just going to say we've sort of, that's obviously not on my CV. So uh, the, the tennis aspect uh, is incredibly important to me. I got a 13 year old daughter right now. Um, who's playing more tennis than I ever played, so to speak. Um, so that's an obvious one, but that also the tennis aspect, uh, if I spin that to something else, then it made me incredibly competitive in the sense that I wanted to do well. I may have gone to some uh, schools that normally uh, people from Sweden wouldn't go to, or perhaps what you wouldn't expect to be the feeding ground for international business thought, but it became a work hard kind of scenario and being competitive and trying to solve the puzzle pieces of scholarship that we do. So the tennis aspect instilled that part in me. And obviously you can never put passion and competitiveness and mindset on a CV. So uh, that's a little bit of, uh, I guess, into my brain cells. <laughs> uh, if you stopped what you're doing today, what's the second best career plan or path for you? Well, the older I get, the more holistic I get in my thinking. And uh, I had a paper come out fairly recently about the international business ecosystem. And we defined what the international business ecosystem uh, entails. So in that uh, sort of spirit, uh, I keep looking at bigger and bigger macro level pictures. So with that in mind, uh, I've been doing a lot of work for the American Customer Satisfaction Index 
despite its name, it has worldwide locations with its consulting branch called the CFI Group. Uh, and it, it's very clear to me that uh, it's customer satisfaction in that title, but we really need to look at the, the world or the globe as an ecosystem where in my book then with a marketing background, a marketing interest primarily, we have to look at customers, their journeys, the customer journey, or obviously customer experience management has been around for a while, but uh, customer journey. So I would probably be more entrenched in that company, American Customer Satisfaction Index at this particular point in time. Uh, frankly, something I've been doing more and more of since I stepped down as executive director of AIB. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about regrets. Have you got any regrets? Um, yeah, you kind of uh, uh, poked on me for the tennis thing, but uh, <laughs> I have to go back to that one, sadly, in my case. Uh, so I tried to play professional tennis for a couple of years before I went to college, uh, and I probably didn't give it as good faith of a try as I would have liked to do. And uh, I see that in my daughter now. My daughter is crazy perfectionist, and I guess she gets that from Laurie, my wife, or myself a little bit, but I probably, uh, you know, I, I've tried ever since I stopped playing tennis at that level, I've tried to be incredibly dedicated and passionate about what I take on. And I, I wish, uh, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19, perhaps, uh, I wish I would have been more dedicated, more passionate about taking that on for a few years. Uh, for example, today, obviously teenagers like my daughter, they practice way more than we did, but they do so more scientifically than we did back in those days as well. And perhaps the academic science rigor in my mindset uh, after getting a PhD, if I could have had that a little bit uh, as a late teenager, that would have been fantastic. Uh, yeah. Weirdly different answer. I'm going to guess that the other uh, 75 or so you've done so far wouldn't dwell on the tennis or, or sports aspect quite as much. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm collecting data as we, as we talk, but um, this is interesting what you said. Actually, yes, it is correct. In the US, the sports are analyzed, the coaches analyze these uh, sports very rigorously, and it's not the European style. In Europe, they just give you a ball. They say, just go, go play. <laughs> In the US, there's a term for everything. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, that's kind of what we did with both our kids. So our son was a big football or soccer uh, uh, guy when he grew up and didn't want to do tennis as much, but the daughter is crazy about it. So it's interesting to see what, what works for each of them. Uh, okay. Uh, what are the most, I don't want to say passionate. There are two questions. I either ask about what's your passion or what are you most proud of? I think I know the answer for the passion part uh, about uh, what you are most proud of. Uh, where we started this interview a little bit, uh, having been executive director of Academy of International Business from 2004 to 2019, uh, again, was an incredible, great honor and privilege, uh, but perhaps little known in that, we took the association at that time almost uh, uh, from not existing financially to now being incredibly solid financially, and also a much more global organization. It used to be about half... Uh, US members, and that's just not true anymore. So it's a much more global organization than it ever was. I'm incredibly proud of those 15, 16 years there, if I'm counting it right. Uh, but also taking, I took on being editor of Journal Academy Marketing Science for a 
two-term periods so of six years. And in that period, uh, 2009 to 2015 to be exact, uh, with what we did, we elevated the status of the Journal of Canada Marketing Science to be included in the Financial Times journals list and being viewed as a premier journal pretty much everywhere. And those two together, uh, it was sort of real results, having very little money in the bank for AIB to frankly a lot uh, at this point or uh, being uh, one of the journals that was good in marketing, but being great. Uh, uh, not just myself trying to pat myself on the shoulder or back, but it seems like that's the common understanding in the field as well. And I'm, I'm super proud of both of those. Uh, lots of other non-academic things that we can skip, but from an academic standpoint, that those are great yes. for me. Thank you. Uh, now let's talk about research for the sake of time. Um, how do you explain the importance of your research and what, what you're researching to people who don't read your work regularly? Say you're stranded in a pub, uh, locals don't know anything about you. Well, it's always time and context a little bit on how you explain yourself. So if you'd asked that question when I got my PhD in 1995, obviously the answer may have been different than today. But today, uh, as we sit here and talk about research and other topics, I would say to um, my wife or son or any neighbor or anyone like that that may not be in our field, I would say that I do research on what customers want globally. And my goal is to help design a better customer journey or engagement from customers or an overall customer experience. So what do customers want globally? Uh, and uh, what does that mean for them for their customer journey? Um, I, I mean, I can continue that thought process. And I think that that has uh, sort of that focus has implications, not just for customers, but a larger set of stakeholders, because we have shareholders, we have suppliers, we have employees, we have regulators, communities, and, and all kinds of different stakeholders around the company that are incredibly important. And by focusing on stakeholders more so than customers as well, uh, the customer journey actually becomes important for countries and industries and companies and customers themselves, whether it's uh, me buying for myself or, or myself buying for, you know, my wife's birthday is tomorrow, for example, buying a, a birthday gift for her. Uh, it, it becomes a customer journey that globally is interesting because it's almost like it's dynamic and has nuances in different countries from Sweden to the United States or anywhere in the world where that customer journey is incredibly important to understand. And this uh, satisfaction uh, index that, that you're involved with, this is a global index you're saying? Uh, it is, uh, well, American Customer Satisfaction Index is tied to the United States, but there's a similar index in England, uh, in Sweden, obviously, you know, offices in Italy and China and, and you name it. So okay. uh, it's very rigorously done in Sweden and the United States. It's more consulting oriented than a bunch of other countries, about 30 countries to be exact. Interesting. Uh, about understudied areas or underutilized areas in IB research. Uh, what are some of the variables that we need to talk, uh, talk about more, more of? Uh, that's a tough question because it, it depends on your understanding of international, or my understanding in this case of international business, as well as everybody's interest and so forth. But I find it fascinating that we're peeling off more and more layers of the 
what we can call complex, complexities of IB research. For example, you know, for years we've been looking at the country culture versus perhaps subcultures versus industry culture versus company cultures. Uh, but to me, given the international marketplace that we reside in, I think we have to start looking a little bit closer at the world and the international marketplace as an international business ecosystem. So there are dynamics both from a business, and this is, I guess, the key aspect of what I wanted to say here. Uh, there are dynamics both from a business and non-business standpoint that come into this international business ecosystem. And I think we as IB researchers and IB interested people, we get very tied to the business constructs, but it's kind of like if we truly believe that there's an ecosystem or if we just want to call it the international marketplace, regardless, there are a lot of business and non-business components that should be tied into this ecosystem and how we understand that, in my case, the customer journey, everything from the cultural things like values, beliefs, norms, and artifacts that are business related, but also non-business related. And if you go more on what I like, then there are different non-business and business sustainability issues that come into play in, the, play in this ecosystem. So a lot of things that uh, maybe we're starting, even in business, we're starting some of these aspects in a silo I think there are a lot of things that, from a methodological standpoint, very unexplained can be found perhaps in non-business constructs. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about some uh, creativity in research. And uh, you got some very creative papers. I'm really curious how these papers came about, especially the, uh, the meta-analysis papers that you involved your, your patient students in. Uh, where does the creativity in research come from for you? How do you come up with these ideas? Uh, so over the years, uh, I gave a talk about uh, when I won one of these awards a couple of years ago, I, I uh, gave a talk, I had to prepare a talk, I should say, and talk a little bit about co-authors and others. And as it turns out, I think I published with over the years about 130 different co-authors, but effectively probably five or 10 that are you know, published over and over and over again with um, the co-authorships present that give and take and finding interesting gaps that perhaps I want to address. There's so many different gaps in research, especially if we include context and time, what's what studies in 1995 versus uh, when I got my PhD versus now and later and so on. There's so many different research questions that we can almost uh, study again, but study certainly in a very different way. So co-authors, uh, uh, and the give and take and the network and the dialogue um, really uh, drive a lot of what I do. But in my case, since I'm strategy focused in pretty much every single paper I write, it has to have a real practical implication for companies. Uh, that's why the American Customer Satisfaction Index and, and the like indices and, and what we do around the world uh, so important to me because we do hardcore research that uh, pretty much always get published in top level journals, uh, mostly in marketing, but uh, that have tremendous benefit for companies. Uh, I can go into some of those details too, but the, the creativity and, and where I get ideas from is, is definitely a combination, sort of almost synergistic combination of a large set of co-authors and large set of industry partners. Which paper, which paper is your Baby, do, do, the one that you like the most. <laughs> uh, it 
that's a tougher question than perhaps should be. It, it's easy to answer what, what is your most cited paper and that becomes your baby. But it's not quite that easy for me because in, in my mind, the last top level paper you published or research you worked on always seems to be in your own mind. It's an illusion, of course, uh, but it seems to be in your own mind the best paper you wrote. And I, I wanted to throw in illusion in that sentence for a purpose, because after a year, after a few years of thinking about a paper, you come to the conclusion that eh, maybe it wasn't as good as it was, or, oh, maybe this paper was much greater than you thought it was at the time, because others have used it in different contexts and cited it in, in ways perhaps that you could not have foreseen at the time. So, uh, I mean, one of the last few papers uh, in general marketing was talking about customer satisfaction over a 15 year period. And we, uh, this is a real traded, exchange traded funds. You can buy it as a stock ACSI. And we showed that 14 out of 15 years, we, that index uh, beat uh, the stock market like crazy. Uh, those are practical, really superb implications. I mean, we're talking about uh, a few hundred percent uh, return versus about 40% for the stock market on average. I mean, there's some tremendous implications out of those things. Or one of the later papers was about complaint behavior. When customers complain, what do you do to get them back? As it turns out, uh, if you say on a hundred point scale, just to make it easy, you have to really score 90 or above. You have to get an A in class in some way uh, in the United States <laughs> to be able to get them back and make them happy in the future. So. Maybe you should spend more time on nurturing the relationship before it goes that far. Uh, obviously, there's some international business things. Like I said, one of the more recent papers in general international business studies where we introduced the idea of the international business ecosystem and talked about it a little bit. That, uh, that one is close to my heart at the moment, but I think I'm giving it too much credit because it's newer than some of the other things. Okay. Uh, let's say a patient comes to you, approaches you and says, uh, Professor Alt, you know, I'm going to be writing my dissertation. What's the next five to 10 years of the field? Can you give us one uh, perfect, great idea that will become a dissertation? I can't give you a research question, but I can give you a general topic. So uh, as we're doing this interview, we're kind of in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and there's so many different aspects of that pandemic that have uh, has shown us that the international marketplace or perhaps ecosystem, if we buy into that idea, all of the, if we believe that there are 195 countries and 61, 62 territories out there as we're counting today, uh, all of those are connected in a cogwheel fashion. And they're cogs such as countries and institutions and various infrastructure items, these cogs are tied together from, you know, obviously the richest countries to the base of the pyramid, the segments of the world that uh, so many of us are interested in. Uh, all of that put together, we try to become per so performance oriented than many of these countries and many of these companies uh, at an efficient and effective viewpoint of performance. So more efficiency, more effectiveness, ultimately, uh, Global supply chain management is where I want to hone in on this. Uh, global supply chain management became more and more and more efficient. But as it turns out, we need to build re redundancy into this cogwheel uh, system or cogwheel ecosystem, if you will. So questions to me for the future are, how much redundancy do we need to build into global supply chains? If uh, 
the port of New Orleans goes down because of uh, uh, various water-related issues or Japan issues come again. And there's so many different disasters and other things we can talk about, whether it's COVID-19 pandemic, uh, almost uh, getting the world to come to standstill. Uh, efficiency and effectiveness are good and they need to be there, but also a certain level of redundancy needs to be built into these systems. And that from a global supply chain standpoint uh, is incredibly important uh, and intriguing to me. So the world really works for the benefit of all of those countries and all of those territories from the richest to the base of the pyramid. We, we have an opportunity to work well from a sustainability or other standpoint across the globe uh, if we spend a little bit more time on understanding global supply chains. So, I mean, there must be slack in the system and someone must be uh, carrying some inventory at one point. Uh, bare bones efficiency is, I, I think, uh, I mean, stage two thing. Yeah, we, we, we became uh, maybe too entrenched in just-in-time management at times. and. Uh, and then not realizing that uh, just because a country is one of the richest doesn't mean that it has the solution to everything, but it also means that we can't uh, leave out some of those countries that are really uh, opportunistically important to the world uh, in the base of the pyramid. The segments, I don't want to call them countries because they're more segments to me than countries, but uh, nevertheless, global supply chains, there's a dynamic uh, give and take between efficiency, effectiveness on one side and redundancy on the other side. And I think finding that optimal point of, of how business should work is really intriguing and I think can be studied quite a bit more. Thank you. Uh, Thomas, uh, what do you wish you had known when you were starting out that would save you so much pain and agony in the PhD program or for your career? Uh, <clears throat> something that, uh, that would change your life? <laughs> uh, my personal education and perhaps even career background, but certainly education background uh, was probably too ad hoc for most if they planned, uh, if I started over, I wouldn't plan it this way either. So the tennis background took me to the United States to play tennis in college for four years, which by default means that I stayed at this one school for both my bachelor's and master's played tennis. And then my wife went to a particular school for her medical degree as a, as a doctor. So I went to the school in the same city for my PhD pretty much. And then started out in Sweden, I have a mechanical engineering degree as well. So my educational career was probably not planned out and way too ad hoc for most people who wanna do make a inroads into making a contribution in a particular field, in my case, in marketing. So I would have planned out uh, my educational background a little bit uh, better. Uh, other than that, um, yeah, um, I think my son is planning his career better. I think we'll see what that means in the future. But I think I would have been less ad hoc oriented in the educational background uh, that I ventured into. Uh, but frankly, that also led me to be more passionate and more competitive to kind of solve some of the issues, the knowledge and skills that I needed to gain, perhaps a bit on the side, outside the formal education system, more so than perhaps what many people do today. Thank you. Now, about uh, the common mistakes that you see 
junior faculty or uh, teacher students uh, uh, do? Um, what are some of the mistakes that they do that you, you think? Um, let me ask you differently. What are the things that people, patients, should not do? Uh, and that will be a good advice for them. Uh, so there are several things that uh, perhaps I did too. I, I remember uh, when I first started publishing papers, maybe in the middle of my PhD program in 1993 or so, but 94, 95, 96, early on, it was very easy to take... Uh, a large data set, add variables, or use certain variables, study something somewhat small uh, in a different context, For just take context, for example. Uh, so context and time, I've said a few times, are incredibly important for international business uh, because what happened in 1995 doesn't happen today, doesn't happen yesterday or tomorrow. So it's important, but it's too easy to say that, okay, something has been studied in 30 countries, so let's study it in the 31st country. So uh, PhD students, if you wanna go down that route or any scholar, myself included, now I, I try to be more holistic, but I would say that just because something has not been deeply examined in all countries from an international business standpoint, doesn't mean that it needs to be or that frankly generalizability from previous research does not exist. So assuming context is a critical issue uh, I think is a misnomer. Um, and then kind of implicitly in what I just said, don't add internationalized variables to perhaps previous domestic uh, theorizing, whether domestic is United States, Sweden, or any other country, just because you've done a study in one country, adding some internationalized variable and saying that we have something remarkably good that addresses a gap that is needed. It, it could be as easy as uh, we identified a gap in the literature but it's not important enough uh, to be studied or some form of generalizability can also be, can already be gleaned from other research. So uh, it's that whole theorizing about uh, cogwheel connections that perhaps I brought up a little bit before the different connections that we see. We have to look at it in a, in a more totality oriented fashion. Adding a construct or two or adding a context or two uh, may or may not be important enough of a gap uh, to warrant publication at that particular time and place. Um, I think if uh, what I tell my PhD student a lot these days, so when I started publishing then in the early to mid 90s, we could present the model, present the results and the relationships held in some cases, perhaps not others. And that was it. And that presented some implications that we could talk about. I think today we have to rule out plausible competing explanations. We have to test uh, something and then we have to show that what we tested is actually the best solution given the circumstances that we're in. So just because your modeling works or the relationships that you're studying uh, end up being significant, that does not mean it carries the true effect of the web of relationships that we should have studied. It may just mean that you're capturing variants, frankly, that would be better and more perhaps practically captured in some competing scenarios. So context is not always, so if I summarize those, context is not always uh, a gap that needs to be studied. Adding a, a variable or two or a few may not be the holistic picture that at that time from a cogwheel standpoint or ecosystem standpoint even uh, is important enough, enough of a gap to be studied. 
And then of course, verifying embedding and testing and validating what we found is as important today as finding what we found in the first place to me. Thank you. So Thomas, uh, last question. Uh, what is one question that I should have asked you about Evans? Uh, it kind of woven into the, the story or dialogue that we've created, but uh, we, we took a pretty deep dive into personal and academic topics in some of these areas. Uh, blending all those together becomes interesting. Uh, but blending even more of the personal uh, aspects with the academic uh, would probably be beneficial for everybody to understand about everyone. It's hard to kind of understand why I like some of the sustainability issues, why I like some of the global supply chain issues and all, all of these topics that perhaps we've covered without also understanding family ties, personal cultural background, how, how my interests have changed over time. You know, easy stuff for all families to relate to. Pre-kids, post-kids, uh, you know, before you had kids and after kids. Some of these things from a research standpoint, working with companies, all of these things uh, evolve. Uh, in my case, I think we can go through all of these questions again. And uh, if I answer them with my 1995 new newly minted PhD mindset, they would have certain answers. But if I build in all of the different aspects, we end up where we are today. If you ask me in 10 years, I'm guessing my answers would be totally different too. So social aspects and how they influence me, um, probably uh, best left for another time, of course, but those things uh, are incredibly important when it comes to studying what we do, being passionate about what we're passionate about and, and so on. Uh, I do think I have to leave it since that was your last question. You said I uh, very much appreciate the opportunity to be captured in this interview. Uh, and again, I thank you so very much for doing not just my interview, but uh, a lot of interviews that are going to be beneficial, I think, for PhD students and everybody else wanting to take inventory of the field of international business more informally, perhaps. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for your kind words. And uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you.